Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Before we get to our story, I would like to talk about the importance of sharing our podcast with friends and family. Word of mouth is one of the fastest ways our podcasts can grow. Show them how to add our podcast on their phone or their favorite listening device. And now it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Picture this. 25,000 Ku Klux Klansmen, armed to the teeth and pouring into the Trumbull County city of Niles. After a tense summer of spotty violence, they are moving forward with plans to hold a tri-state rally in support of election candidates that will push their policy of intolerance against Catholics, Jews, and immigrants. Now, imagine that already inside that city waiting for them are 10,000 Knights of the Flaming Circle, Italians, Irish, African-Americans, all professed enemies of the Klan, wielding shotguns and swords and determined to stop the rally at the cost of their very lives. The stage is set for a religious and cultural battle that could be unlike anything Ohio has ever seen. But first, all history is better with context. So before we get to that showdown, Allow me to set the table, because there are some things you may not know about the Klan of the 1920s, and there's a good chance you've never heard about the Knights of the Flaming Circle. Let's start with the Ku Klux Klan. You may remember it more as the group that formed right after the Civil War when Confederate veterans made it their sole mission to terrorize Black Americans and work to deny them the same rights and opportunities as whites. When Jim Crow laws gave Southern communities a legal way of segregating and suppressing black families, the KK's work was pretty much done for them, so they faded into the background for a couple of decades. But during the 1910s, there was a new target for their hate— The Great Migration had brought millions of people into the United States in pursuit of the American dream. And so the KKK began to focus on immigrants and any faith that wasn't Protestant. This time, instead of being a uniquely Southern movement, it was very popular in the North, where people felt threatened by the foreign accents of the workers who were standing next to them in the thriving industrial belt. By the 1920s, it was estimated the KKK had a national membership of 5 million people, and get this, nearly half a million of them were in Ohio. Summit County, for instance, it's a predominantly liberal bastion today, but a 100 years ago, The Klan claimed to have 50,000 members there alone, making it the largest local chapter in the United States, and including mayors, judges, county commissioners, and school board members. The Klan was so popular in Licking County, 
The group held its annual conclave there in 1923 and 1925, with more than 70,000 people in attendance both times. But the Klan was about to face an organized enemy, a group that decided not to let those men hidden beneath their white hoods parade down their streets without objection. The Knights of the Flaming Circle first announced themselves in Kane, Pennsylvania in 1923. It's about a hundred miles from the Ohio border. And there they lit a huge ring on fire and sent local media an anonymous letter that announced, Cain is selected as the starting point of a movement that will ring the earth with blazing justice to all. We are enemies of all clans. We believe in liberty for every human being, black, white, or yellow, regardless of race, religion, or creed. Now, the group made fun of the Klan by adopting some similar practices. They wore robes, but not hoods. They would not hide their identity. Where the Klan had taken delight in crosses in the yards of Catholics, Jews, and immigrants, the Knights would set tires on fire in the yards of known Klansmen to symbolize their blazing ring. They even took a jab at the KKK's hierarchy, which had ridiculous titles like Imperial Wizard and Grand Dragon. The Knights named their leader the Grand Supreme Monarch. Now, since membership in the Klan had three criteria, you had to be white, Protestant, and born in America, the Knights opened their membership to anyone who didn't meet all three of those criteria. There's no firm accounting of how that membership broke down within the Knights, but Italian and Irish Catholics seem to be the dominant demographic. The month after the Knights announced their formation in Pennsylvania, a small explosion and another burning ring that could be seen atop a hill right outside Steubenville, Ohio, announced the group had expanded across the Ohio River. Our story tonight is about what happened next when these sworn enemies finally met in Ohio, beginning with a small but notable fight fest in Steubenville and then a deadly standoff in Niles. August 15, 1923 was a Wednesday and the day after a primary election in Ohio. In Steubenville, there had been a tough and bitter campaign for mayor. And in the end, Albert T. Smith, the candidate that had been supported by the local Ku Klux Klan, lost to the incumbent, Frank Hawkins, who was a former Klansman himself who had been kicked out of the group for unexplained reasons. Now, in the face of their defeat, area Klansmen decided to make a little show of pride. About a hundred of them, mostly from the nearby towns of East Liverpool, Ohio, and Weirton across the Ohio River in West Virginia, donned their white robes. They filled 25 cars decorated with electrically illuminated crosses and American flags draped over hoods and fenders. They slowly moved their caravan through Steubenville's business district, 
led by a musical band. As they paraded down Market Street, citizens gathered to jeer them. The Klansmen continued on to their meeting hall, which was on 5th Street. They went inside and remained there till about 1.45 p.m. But in that time, word had traveled like wildfire. What had been a random collection of downtown pedestrians turned into a mob, a crowd that some estimated to be between 1,500 and 3,000 people gathered around the Klan Hall to wait for their reappearance. So the first four robed Klansmen exited the hall and were confronted by a military veteran at the head of the crowd. Did you ever serve in the World War? He asked one of the Klansmen. I certainly did, the Klansman replied. Then the questioner pointed to the stars and stripes used as a blanket over a parked car's hood and said, Then aren't you ashamed to use the American flag in that way? I am not, the Klansman said. Uh, It was the wrong answer. The four Klansmen made it to the car, but the crowd dragged them back out and threw them to the ground. By now, the Klan Hall had emptied of its 100 members, and they tussled with people in the mob, mostly fists, but a few stones, and occasionally a club was thrown about in the melee. The angry mob ripped the crosses and flags from the Klan cars and overturned them. County deputies joined local police, and it took a good 45 minutes to bring this fight fest under control. It was a miracle no one had been killed. Both Klansmen and residents were strewn along the curb, sporting black eyes and bruised ribs. The police put the remaining Klansmen into their vehicles and escorted them out of town. The remaining crowd dispersed. But the day's events weren't over yet. Two hours later, the local Klan leader, Darwin Gibson, a 35-year-old railroad conductor, was walking with four associates when they were ambushed by at least three gun-wielding men. Shots rang out on Washington Street as Gibson and his friends pulled out their own guns and returned fire. Gibson was shot in the neck. Two of the men who had attacked his group were also injured. John DeSantis, a 26-year-old inspector who took a bullet to his left eye, and Dominic Spinetti, a 27-year-old resident who was shot in the shoulder. Though it was touch-and-go for Gibson and DeSantis, remarkably, they both recovered, though DeSantis lost his eye, and news reports said Gibson was going to have to live with a bullet lodged at the base of his brain that doctors feared to remove. Police arrested and charged a man named Frank Velta for shooting Gibson, and ten others were taken into custody on a variety of charges. As night descended on Steubenville, the town was tense. Rumors were circulating that the Klan intended to be back for a full demonstration. City police and county sheriff deputies patrolled the streets, breaking up any groups that appeared to be forming. Around 3 a.m. that next morning, several cars carrying heavily armed Klansmen from East Liverpool were arrested. Police had discovered them and taken them into custody. After dawn rose, people in the city's Fishers Hill neighborhood on the south side 
spotted about 20 robed figures engaged in erecting a KKK cross on the brow of a hill that was overlooking their part of the city. Some boys who spotted them alerted the neighbors, and area homes emptied of men, women, and children, all who raced to the hill. The clansmen saw them coming, grabbed their cross, and fled in their cars. Now, the rest of this incident played out in the courts, with civil lawsuits and criminal trials over the next few months. But Steubenville turned out to be just a dress rehearsal for what was to come. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The next battle between the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of the Flaming Circle came the following year, about 70 miles due north of Steubenville in Niles, Ohio. Throughout the summer of 1924, members of both groups had locked horns in Niles. They fought in the streets. There were some arrests. Parades were scheduled and then canceled. Tensions were high, but kept on a simmer. That is, until the Ku Klux Klan scheduled a huge parade, rally, and tri-state convention in the city for November 1, ahead of the general election. They wanted to promote their candidates before voters headed to the polls. They applied for a parade permit, saying they expected to have at least 25,000 in attendance from Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. The local mayor, Harvey Kistler, approved the permit. Now the Knights of the Flaming Circle, in keeping with their mission not to let the Klan go unprovoked, announced its plans to have a parade and tri-state convention the same day. They applied for a permit, saying they expected more than 10,000 to be in attendance. Mayor Kistler denied their request. He said no way could the town support and provide security for two gatherings of groups who clearly were at war with each other. He told the Knights to pick another day. Now this might have sounded like a very common sense approach to a clearly obvious powder keg, but there were a couple of reasons why the Knights and many townspeople reacted with anger. For starters, the mayor had been elected the previous year with the Klan's support, so he was already on the outs with his city's ethnic and non-Protestant neighborhoods. Even worse, the police chief seemed to have revealed himself to be a Klan supporter during the summer's tensions because he swore several Klansmen in as special police to help with the turmoil. So the Knights said they intended to gather anyway, permit or no, and they passed out handbills spreading word of their event. The handbills warned women and children to stay home that day, and the city interpreted that to be an open declaration of war. 
And, to be fair, it was. On the night of October 29, this was three days before the Klan rally, an explosion rocked the mayor's house. He and his wife were sleeping in an upstairs bedroom, and they escaped without injury. Police found evidence of dynamite that had been set beneath the front porch. To them, an indication that the assailants intended to scare rather than hurt the Kistlers. Those responsible were never identified. The following day, more than 800 prominent citizens in Niles begged the mayor to cancel the permit for the KKK rally. He refused. Instead, the mayor called Ohio Governor Victor Donahue and asked for the National Guard to be sent to provide security for the day. But the governor flatly refused, saying the city had options to prevent what was surely coming. And if Kistler was going to allow the Klan rally to go on, then he needed to rely on neighboring police forces to help him. Trumbull County Sheriff John Thomas put in the same call to the governor and got the same response. Both you and the mayor have had ample warning and ample time to prepare for any possible emergency. If riot, tumult, or disorder develops, every agency of the state government will be used to quell the same immediately and restore order. But in any event, I will hold you and the mayor strictly accountable. Well, what followed was about 18 hours of nonstop rioting. It started that Friday night when some knights got word that Klansmen were hauling ammunition into town and storing it in Rummel's pool room. 19-year-old Frank McDermott was among a group who raced to the site to confront them. He leaped onto a running board of a Klan car and was shot twice. He fell from the car as it sped away but he did survive his injuries. After sunrise, McDermott's father, a former state senator, appeared before a large crowd and addressed them, appealing for peace. He was shot at, though not hit. Throughout the night, the Knights of the Flaming Circle set up roadblocks on the major streets into town. They stood ready, armed with revolvers, sawed-off shotguns, even swords, as the morning brought a steady stream of cars to town, many of them with West Virginia and Pennsylvania license plates, all approaching the Nile city limits. Each vehicle was searched. Clan robes and guns were removed. Fistfights ensued. Some cars were overturned. At one point, a car loaded with Klansmen objected to the search by producing their own weapons and firing on the knights who were stationed at Main and Federal Streets. Two of the knights fell dead. Several more were wounded. Joseph Jennings, Jr., was just five years old, but for years he carried a few memories that he had, plus the stories his family had told him. He was one of a lot of Niles residents who shared their recollection with Stephen Papalus, a Youngstown State University student who did an oral history on the riot back in the 1980s. Jennings lived with his parents above his father's nightclub on Mason Street. He said his father's dance hall 
was the center of the resistance movement. He remembers seeing his mother with guns tucked into her apron and passing weapons out to people in the group. After rumors circulated that the Klan intended to go to a local convent and rape the sisters, some of the newly armed men went and surrounded the convent and remained there till the riot was done to protect the nuns. Jennings also remembered seeing hooded Klansmen captured and then dragged through the streets while tied to the back of his father's Studebaker. Mayor Kistler continued to ignore calls to revoke the parade permit and send the Klan home, so Sheriff Thomas took his request directly to Klan leadership, asking them to leave. They refused. At 1.15 p.m., the governor did what local officials had failed to do. He canceled the rally and placed Niles under martial law. He dispatched National Guard units from Youngstown, Warren, Akron, Canton, Barberton, Cleveland, and Berea, about 1,600 men in all. Guardsmen were posted at the train depot. When 25 passenger carloads of Klansmen arrived, they were forbidden from leaving the train and sent off. Most businesses were ordered closed, and people were ordered to be off the streets by 6 p.m. Soldiers marched about, interrupting any gathering of three or more people. The guard presence did its job pretty fast, especially after the machine gun company from Warren arrived in vehicles that sported mounted machine guns. And after the soldiers from Youngstown began marching through the streets, with fixed bayonets. The Klan left town. The Knights of the Flaming Circle disappeared, and residents retreated into their homes. The town remained under martial law for 10 days. For many of those days, up to 500 soldiers stayed on the streets. The governor ordered the guard to impanel a grand jury and determine if anyone should be held accountable for what newspapers were calling a religious war. In the end, blame was never officially placed, though the governor openly chastised local officials for knowing what was coming and not preparing for it or taking pains to stop it. More than a 100 people were indicted on a variety of charges. I've seen conflicting numbers on casualties from that day, They have ranged from three to six dead, either during the rioting or from wounds sustained during the fight. The Klan was incensed. It announced it would come back to Nile soon to hold its parade and rally, saying, we will make an issue of this. The Knights of the Flaming Circle made a public reply, over our dead bodies. Now, three rather notable and positive changes came of this whole affair, and I think they're worth mentioning. For starters, the Klan's influence in the area collapsed after the riot. In that oral history project of Papalus, he said former Klansmen were reluctant to talk to him on the record, that they only joined the Klan because their supervisors gave Klansmen the better shifts at work. 
or they admitted to being moved by the fear-mongering that immigrants would force them out of their jobs altogether. A lot of Klansmen from the Niles area reportedly dropped their membership pretty quickly after the riot of 1924. Secondly, the affair inspired an annual interfaith banquet in Trumbull County that is still held each year, with church leaders of all faiths coming together in this special tradition of respecting and learning about each other. The third silver lining was this. Prior to the riot, black families had been unofficially prevented from moving into the city. Niles was the only place in Northeast Ohio to take such a stand. They had a sign near the Erie Depot that warned people of color not to let the sun set on their heads while they were in town. But after area African Americans joined the Knights against the KKK, the white residents of Niles lifted their objection, and it paved the way for the first black families to move into the city. Now, Niles is far from a diverse population today. I believe there are fewer than 700 black residents in a town of about 18,000. But at least for a generation, according to some who participated in that oral history project, there was a mutual respect between Italian and Irish enclaves and their new black neighbors. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, like, subscribe, leave a good comment, and tell a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. Ohio Mysteries is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Head on over to evergreenpodcast.com to check out more podcasts from the Evergreen Group. You can also see us featured on KillerPodcasts.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.